Today, we're beginning a new series called Desperate People. Now, some of you may have kind of attached that word to maybe a negative connotation, like, oh man, he's really desperate for a woman, you know? And, and we're, we're going to kind of try to redeem the term desperate people uh, into a new context. But today, I wanted to start with a question. When you walked in, you got a bulletin, and that bulletin is a handout. It looks like this, and at the top of that handout is a question that I want you to ponder for with, with me for a second. And that question is, what is one of the hardest seasons you've experienced in life? What is one of the hardest experiences when you, that you've experienced in life? When you talk to somebody about what's shaped you, what's molded you, what's made you who you are today, what's one of those situations? I'm not going to ask you to share it with your neighbor or person next to you, but I'd encourage you to write down that season on your handout. A word, a phrase, maybe if you're artistic, draw a picture. But what is that season? And as I went back into my past this week and, and thought about that, I thought about the story I told my first Sunday at Cornerstone about how my wife and I almost lost our twins and she was on bed rest for 18 weeks in 2014. Uh, I thought even about this season moving here, uh, establishing kind of a sense of God was moving us on to a new thing earlier this year and we weren't really sure what that was and we had big questions and a laundry list. I could spend the next 30, 40 minutes just telling you all the things that God had to work out uh, to get us here. And one of the things that I learned through my tough season, if you've written one of those down, you've probably learned the same thing, is that life often makes us desperate. Life often makes us desperate. And it's not the seasons that we would have chosen or created. It's often the seasons that we didn't ask for or plan for. And the result of those seasons often is that God births a desperation in our hearts. If you've ever been at the end of your rope financially, you know what it means to be desperate to, to see financial means and ends come together. If you've ever lost a job, you know what it means to be desperate for somebody to call you after making an application or doing an interview. If, if you've ever had a relationship that went sideways, you know what it means to be desperate for that relationship to reconcile. And today I want to operate from a definition of desperation, and it's this definition right here that a desperate person is someone who wants something so badly that they will go to extreme lengths to get it. A desperate person is someone who wants something so badly that they will go to extreme lengths to get it. See, desperation is not necessarily a bad thing. Sometimes desperation leads us to do bad things. You've heard that phrase, desperate times call for... Okay, and so each of us know that as a cliche, but we also know that from reality. Sometimes there are things we've done when we're desperate they're not necessarily proud of, but it's because we wanted something so badly that we were able and willing to go to extreme lengths to get it. You know, I read a story a few years ago about a, a man, a pastor, who was living in a desperate place. His name was Jim Simbola, and he was pastoring in Brooklyn in the early 1970s, and his church was in a really bad spot. They, the offerings were barely covering the mortgage, much less his salary. The people who were coming had really um, desperate needs. It was the middle of the drug crisis that really crippled New York in the 70s and the 80s, and, and he was just overwhelmed. He had, had, didn't have any experience really pastoring, and he was in over his head. And in his journal, he wrote these words that ended up being included in a book he wrote. He said this, I despaired at the thought that my life might slip by without seeing God show himself mightily on our behalf. 
You know, I, I think back to all the things that I despaired about, all the things that I've worried about, all the things I've been concerned about. And his primary concern was not that he was going to get paid. It was not that his church would grow. It was not that he'd have all the answers. His despair was that he thought maybe my life might go by and people might stand one day over my grave and my life would have passed without seeing God show up in a powerful way in my life. I don't know about you, but, but I believe that these stories in this book that we call the Bible really happened. I believe they aren't just fairy tales that we hear when we're children. I believe they're real stories. But the challenge is many of us read the stories in this book and we don't believe that God is still doing those things today. And my prayer is that my life, that my time here as the pastor of Cornerstone would not pass me by, that, that we would not be church together and allow time to go by, that we would not allow this season to pass and not see God show up mightily. It'd be a tragedy if this church did things incredibly in Zambia, did incredible things here in Prescott. If, if we saw people come to Christ and get baptized or we saw more, more seats filled on a Sunday and yet we didn't see God show up mightily. It'd be a tragedy if we did incredible things for God and yet we didn't see God do incredible things. And so the big idea for this series for this morning that I want you to think about this week is this. Life can make us desperate or we can choose desperation for ourselves. Life can make us desperate or we can choose desperation for ourselves. At the top of your sheet, you wrote down that event that made you desperate. You can, you can wait for one of those to come again and discover a new level of intimacy and dependence on God. You can wait for a phone call from your doctor, or you can wait for a relational crisis, or you can wait for a financial crisis, or you can wait for some unprecedented adversity in your life, and then you'll renew your relationship with God, then you'll depend on God again, then you'll see God show up again. Or you could choose to begin to live desperately anyway. You could begin to posture yourself. You could begin to place yourself in a relationship with God and in a way of life that produces that kind of desperation. Because many of us have learned the situations we never asked for or planned for often led to the greatest times we've had with God. Why wait for something bad to happen to get that? I'm just of the, I'm just of the opinion, I'm probably young and stupid, so, you know, give me some grace here, but... I'm, I'm just young and stupid enough to believe that you don't have to wait for bad things to happen to discover great things with God. I think you can begin to live in a way that makes those possible. So this morning, I've got a passage I want to share with you from the Bible. It's Acts chapter 12. Now, for those of you who can count, which hopefully is most of you in the room, this is a lot of verses for an, even a normal Sunday, and today is not a normal Sunday, so we're not going to read them all. I'm just going to kind of summarize the story for you, and I'd encourage you to go home and read it on your own. Acts, if you're unfamiliar, is the story in the Bible of the early church. It's actually short for the Acts of the Apostles. And in Acts chapter 12, things start getting really crazy. They start getting really intense. If you were to talk to these people, they would write down this season at the top of their sheet. Because here's what happened. There's a man named James. He was one of the three followers of Jesus that were closest to Jesus. And Herod the king, he beheads James. He executes him. 
I guess the city responded well to this because people weren't fans of Christians. So he goes, hey, let's do it to somebody else because that's what you do when something good happens. You do a sequel. And he calls in James. James is arrested, and they prepare to execute James. Luckily for, sorry, execute Peter. Luckily for Peter, there's a Passover celebration happening. It's a religious festival. Not a good time to execute somebody. So he stays in prison, and while he's in prison, the church begins to pray fervently, passionately, that they wouldn't lose Peter too. And Peter one night is sleeping. He's between two guards who are, who are chained to him. There's two guards outside of their door and then two guards outside of the, the prison. I mean, it's, it's locked down like Fort Knox. And Peter gets a kidney shot from an angel, wakes up, and says, hey, get up. And his chains fall off. And he walks to the door, and it's like, you know, Aladdin, open sesame. And he steps out, and the other gate opens. And he's walking with this angel, and all of a sudden, this angel's gone. And he's free. And he pinches himself, like, is this, is this really happening? Did I dream this? No, no, I'm really free. So he runs to the house where the church is praying, and this is the part where irony comes in. And there's lots of, lots of forms of humor in the world. You know, there's sarcasm. I love irony. It's just my favorite kind of humor. And so Peter goes to the door and he knocks on the door and um, a woman named Rhoda comes up and she's like, who's there? And he said, it's Peter, the one they've been praying for. She's like, awesome, Peter, yay. And she runs away, just leaves him hanging there at the door, you know, poor Rhoda. And uh, Rhoda goes in and says, hey, Peter's here. And they go, no, no, Peter's not here. It's, it's probably his angel. She's like, no, 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 no. We've been praying. Got answered our prayer. Peter's here. No, Rhoda, silly Rhoda, you know. And so they have this argument. Meanwhile, Peter just keeps, keeps knocking. And finally they go out and they realize, hey, it's Peter. And they're just overjoyed. And he tells them to quiet down. It's the middle of the night. Let me tell you what happened. And they celebrate. And from this story, I discover three qualities of desperate people that I want to share with you this morning in the time that we have. And the first quality of desperate people is desperate people are unwavering in prayer. Desperate people are unwavering in prayer. You know, I've discovered in my own life that there's a difference in how I pray when things are going well and when things aren't going well. There's a difference in how I pray where I'm just kind of praying for the usual stuff, you know, like traveling mercies. Those aren't in the Bible, but we pray for them anyway. Uh, and I'm, I'm praying for people to be healthy, and I'm praying for a good day, and I'm praying for my kids to finally go to sleep so I can get some rest. You know, I'm praying for those stuff. And then there's the stuff I pray for when things aren't going well, when I'm desperate for God to show up, when I, I need him to move because I'm not sure what else to do, and I'm not sure if he doesn't show up that, that this is not actually going to work out. There's a different kind of prayer there. This, you know, I'll pray over dinner, long enough to cover it, but short enough so the food doesn't get cold. This I'll pray, and I'll pray, and I'll pray, and I'll pray, and I'll stay up, and I'll get up early, and I'll get on my knees, and I'll close my eyes, and I'll put other things aside, and I'll keep praying. See, desperate people are unwavering in prayer. And one of the challenges about being a desperate person is sometimes while you wait for God, it gets difficult. I don't know about you, but if if, if God and I were like friends and I had his email, um, I think the way it would work is I'd send him a calendar request and he would never get it. It doesn't seem like God operates on my timetable. Do I have any company in the room? And so because of that, while I wait, it's really easy to start wavering in prayer. 
because I'm waiting and I'm getting frustrated. I'm getting impatient. It says in verse 5 of chapter 12, it says that Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. That word earnest in the Greek means unfaltering. It means persevering. It means unrelenting. It means they just kept praying and praying and praying and praying and praying. They didn't give up. Here's a question for you. Have you grown weary while waiting? Is there something that you're waiting for God to do in your life that you're desperate for him to do and you've become weary? You've started wavering in your prayer. You've started doubting that it's actually going to happen. You're not praying with the fervency you once had. You're not as desperate as you once were. Maybe you're more cynical than hopeful. See, I believe that desperate people are unwavering in prayer because they know if God doesn't show up, it doesn't matter. They know that, that if life slips by and they don't see God move, there's no amount of money or technology or stuff that can fill that void. And so they're unwavering in prayer. The second quality of desperate people is they're expectant and in their attitude. They have an expectant attitude. You say, Scott, what do you mean? Well, we all remember that moment as a child on Christmas morning when we were expectant. We went to bed excited. We, we were expecting something. We'd asked for something. Maybe we even prayed for it, you know, to come on Christmas morning. And so we were expectant about that coming. Is that how you pray? Do you have that sense of expectation that God is going to answer your prayers? See, I think some of us, when we pray, we're kind of... Um, we're kind of like this. Dear God, um, hope you're doing well. Um, you know, if you've got a minute next Tuesday at nine, I know there's about seven billion other people that are praying to you right now, but, you know, if you get a minute and it's not a big deal, and of course the biggest one, if it's in your will, um, would you just maybe kind of, I guess, maybe like um, um, do this? You know, no, no, no big deal. If not, okay, thank you. Um, in Jesus' name, um, amen. And our prayers die the death of a thousand qualifications, you know? And so we're not really expectant anymore. And maybe you're not expectant because you've prayed and it didn't happen, and so now you're cynical and hurt. You feel like God lets you down. Or maybe you're not expectant because you don't actually believe that God answers those prayers. Or maybe you're praying and you're really not even sure there's anyone out there. What's so interesting that happens in verse 13 is while they're praying, there's a couple different responses that happen here in this verse. When Peter knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice in her joy, she didn't open the door, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the door. What's so interesting is in the next verse, the people who are there, they don't believe it. They've been praying for probably six to nine hours for this, but they don't actually believe it. And, and there's nothing in the passage that says that Rhoda is the one who was a, a more expectant and believing person. I just kind of read in this and go, when it, the answer came, Rhoda responded with belief and the other people didn't. And so my, my question for us is, what do your prayers sound like? I mean, when you're praying, are you praying expecting God to answer or are you just going through the motions? When you're praying, are, are, you, are you leaving places to let God off the hook? Or are you saying, God, if you don't come through, this is not going to work out? My wife and I, when we um, were getting ready to move here, we had one day to find a house. And um, we spent a date night looking at 130 houses online. It was 
Best date night ever. Um, <laughs> but we didn't fight too bad. And we came up with a list of 12. And by the time we get to the day, we're looking, the 12 had gone down to nine. So we had nine houses and three little cities here to see in five hours. It was beyond exhausting. But we found a house. We've been in the market for three days. So we put an offer in, prayed like crazy and called everybody to pray. And then 24 hours later, it was ours. And I have to tell you, driving around a city that I really didn't know that well, um, I was desperate. I mean, I'd pray before I walked in the house, God, help this to be the house. And then it wasn't the house, and I got more desperate, or there was a piece of it that didn't work, and, um, and we were desperate. But we knew this was the one day we had. I mean, the next day she had to be at work. There was no other options. We had to find a house that day. And so because of that, we had this expectation that if we were going to move here, we felt like God had called us here, that God was going to do this. And so that changed how we went through the day. And I just want to challenge you that I think sometimes we fall into a rut where we stop expecting God to answer our prayers. We do it because we're supposed to do it. We don't do it because we actually expect him to do it. The third quality of desperate people is that they're quick to celebrate. They're quick to celebrate. I, I find this scene so funny that the people inside finally do hear Peter knocking. They come to the door in verse 17. And they saw him and they were amazed. But motioning them with his hand to be silent, you know, it's like the old SNL sit, you know, simmer down now, simmer down now. He described to them how the Lord had brought him out of prison. They, they were celebrating. And I think that the challenge with prayer is sometimes that we're so fervent in our prayer. I mean, we get down on our knees and we close our eyes and we spend, you know, an eternity, 15 minutes praying. And, and, and we'll do that for day after day or week after week, month after month, some of us even year after year. And we've been at it for a long time. And then God answers the prayer. And I'm not sure we celebrate to the equivalency of our prayer. I mean, you might say this is a lot to do for these nine or ten people who went to Zambia. But you don't understand. They raised $30,000. They sacrificed vacation time time they could have been making money to pay for college to go. And so we felt like it was worthy to celebrate the road they've been walking to get here today. And to take time, even tonight, to celebrate over a meal what God had done, it's worth celebrating. And I think sometimes as Christians, we're really good at taking time for prayer, but we're not really good at taking time to party. I mean, the best partiers in town are rarely Christians. We kind of leave that to everybody else. He's a partier. Oh, yeah, and a Christian, too. What? But, I mean, honestly, don't we have the greatest thing in the world to celebrate? I mean, some of you, your life was hanging by a thread when God's grace found you. Some of you had seen relationships fall apart, and where there was discord and disagreement, there is now forgiveness and reconciliation. Some of you were completely insecure, and now you're confident and bold. That's what God did. Isn't that worthy of celebrating? I mean, there's three stories in the Bible. There's a story about a man who loses a sheep, a, man who loses a, a woman who loses a coin, and a man who loses a son. And when the man finds his sheep and the woman finds her coin and the man's son comes home, what do they do? They throw a party. So why aren't we quicker to celebrate? Why sometimes do we struggle 
to be as bold and boisterous in our celebration as we are in our prayers. See, if you're desperate and God moves, that's the time to throw a party. So here's the question. What's the last party you threw because of what God did? I mean, we throw parties for anniversaries and for birthdays and for promotions and for graduations. I mean, now, like, kids, they get, like, five graduations, kindergarten, fifth grade, eighth grade, high school. I mean, like, it's, it's crazy. But what's the last party you threw for what God did? Hey, come over for dinner. Well, what's the, what are we doing? What are we celebrating? What are we celebrating? What God did? That's not normal, but it should be. It should be. So I've been thinking, um, and this may be early to throw something out like this, but I've got a challenge for you for the next four weeks. Something I want us to do together because we're not together every day. We leave today and most of us see, we'll see each other for next week. But here's the challenge I want to put in front of you, something I want to do with you every single day for a, a few weeks. And here's the challenge. For the next 28 days, I'm challenging everyone who calls Cornerstone home to pray every day at 1215. I'm challenging each of us to stop every day at 1215 and pray. Now, some of you, I know you work at 1215. So tomorrow your prayer might be, God, I want to kill my boss. Help me to not kill my boss. Amen. That's a win. Like, that is a win right there. If you do that, man, your pastor is proud of you on Monday. Others of you, it might be, you know, you and your spouse are at home and you're eating a meal and the alarm goes off on your phone that you're going to set because you can't remember things like me. 12.15, the alarm goes off and you stop eating and, and you pray. Maybe one day at 12.15, your alarm goes off and you've been thinking about somebody. God put them on your heart. And you're actually going to use your phone for what they created it for, you know, 20 years ago. You're going to call them on it. You know, I know it's crazy, you millennials, but you can actually call people on these things. Um, and you're going to pray for that person because God put it on your heart. Or maybe you're just going to send a quick text like, hey, I'm praying for you. I'm in this with you. I don't know. I just think if hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people took time for 28 days to pray every day, we have no idea what God would do. And some of you, even just that daily act of prayer is going to be defiance in the face of cynicism because you're not sure you believe in prayer anymore. And some of you who feel like you can't put two good days together in following Jesus, that little moment every day at 1215 is going to be a sign of God's grace that you can do this by his power. And some of you, this is going to be the beginning of God doing something incredible so that you don't have to be like Jim Cimbala. You don't have to despair that your life has passed by without seeing God move mightily. Now, some of you, this is going to be the beginning of God doing a mighty work in your life. And I don't know about you, but I just think God could do some incredible things in Prescott and in Cornerstone and in our world if all of us committed that every day at the same time, we'd pray. And whatever God said to us, whatever God did in us, we'd move and respond with. So, it's not rocket science. It's not complicated but I'm inviting you to join me on this journey for the next 28 days. And my prayer isn't that we all pray at the same time. My prayer is that that prayer makes us desperate people who want something so badly that we're willing to go to extreme lengths to get it. Would you pray with me? God, I thank you so much for what you did in the life of Peter, that miraculous moment. But God, I pray that the stories in this book, in the scriptures, wouldn't just be stories that we read about with nostalgia. 
I, I pray that they would be stories that remind us of what you're doing in our lives today. That we would experience you, the God of the Bible, in the present day. That we wouldn't just read about what you did way back then, but that you would give stories to tell us of what you're doing right now. That we'd be people who celebrated that. God, there's some people in this room today who came in with really crazy, hairy, difficult situations. There's some people sitting in this room or watching online who are at the end of their rope, and God, I pray that you would meet them there and that they would begin for just a moment every day to invite you into their chaos and crisis and ask you to change it. God, we pray that you would make us the kind of people who are desperate for and dependent on you. And we pray that the things that you've done in the past days at Cornerstone would be nothing compared to the future days. God, we're asking boldly and confidently for you to move. We want to become people who are desperate for you. And we pray that this is the beginning of an incredible journey together. In your name we pray, amen. Thanks for the extra time today, guys. Have a great week. We'll see you next Sunday. Thank you for listening to the audio from Cornerstone Church in Prescott, Arizona. For more information, visit us online at www.prescottcornerstone.com.